Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tejos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Valerie, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Smart Karma Insight Provider and the founder and chief economist of Heteronomics, Philip Rush, as he shares with us his insights on the current outlook of inflation in Europe. Before we start, a bit of standard housekeeping. As always, please feel free to send in your questions for our analysts throughout the webinar using the Q&A button on your Zoom app, and we will get to them during the Q&A section. Please do not reshare the contents of this webinar without expressed permission. A recording will be available afterwards on the registration page and will be sent to all attendees. And with that, thank you, Phil, for being with us today. It must be pretty early in the morning for you, and we re- really like to thank you for being with us. So maybe you can give us a brief introduction of your background before we dive right into the topic for today. Yeah, sure. And thank you very much for, for having me. Good morning. Good evening to everyone joining, depending on where you are. So, so I'm Philip Rush, founder and chief economist at Heteronomics. I've been founded the firm about six years ago, spinning out of the sell side where I was most recently a senior European and chief UK economist at Nomura. Before that, I was at Barclays and started somewhat inauspiciously at the joys of the Lehman Brothers there until almost the end. So throughout that period, UK, Europe, inflation, monetary policy, they have been my my focal points to the point that when we would share forecasts with Bloomberg and Reuters, it'd typically be the top ranked over many, many years, uh, top ranked forecaster. Nowadays, clients don't really like us sharing the value too widely. So the insights that we provide and the forecasts only go with with our clients, and much of that indeed is, is shared on the Smart Karma platform. If you want the kind of weekly type forecasts nowadays, I have started doing a, a newsletter on LinkedIn, which doesn't go uh, through Smart Karma because of it being a, a weekly thing. But that would fill in some of the gaps, and you could, would be able to find all the articles that I refer to in that newsletter on Smart Karma. So a little hack for getting more of my stuff for free there. <laughs> um, okay, so this is a updated version of my monthly. Now, we're focusing on the, the inflation side today, which yeah, is a real kind of passion and research focus for us. But it's also been a huge driver of developments within Europe and beyond. The forecast drift that economists have been suffering on inflation, that's the thing that keeps pushing interest rate hikes, even while uh, we're seeing economies tilt into recessionary environments. That is broadly an accepted form of collateral damage. It doesn't stop the rate hikes. It's just something that has to happen in order to get that inflationary pressure under control. Our Bank of England view was still that they wouldn't need to go as far as the Fed and the market's kind of repriced significantly in, in recent weeks to, to kind of fully bake that in. But the on the ECB side, where we're seeing particularly acute inflation problems, there's a need for the ECB to take policy into an outright 
tight setting, which is something that it's it's now explicitly acknowledging as of the October press conference. And the, the, the implications of getting policy into an outright tight setting is that you then need to cut back towards a more neutral setting in the medium term. Otherwise, once you've kind of conquered that inflation problem, you're actually going to be pushing inflation below target, sort of over-tightening things. The market recognises that for, for the Fed and the Bank of England, where the kind of optimal control exercise is known, and, and this is the way that it goes. You go up and you come down. But in the, EC, uh, in the case of the ECB, you actually, in 2024, have a upward sloping curve. So the, the market isn't getting the regime that the euro area is in yet, which again flows from the inflation through the central bank's reaction function into the way that the market should be pricing that interest rate outlook. Now, in terms of the inflation points, as I say, we're, we are seeing a bit more of an inflation issue in Europe than others. This kind of this third block of heat map here, you can see our CPI forecasts for the UK and how much higher they are than the consensus and the Bank of England. If we go onto the euro area equivalent, you see again, we're a bit higher than, in this case, the consensus the ECB. Now, from the recent news, which is a correlate that aligns with the October prints, We've seen enormous surprises to the consensus, both in the UK and the euro area. Now, we were well above consensus on both counts, you know, 50 basis points above on the RPI, and yet it still ended up being an upside surprise to us. In the case of the latest one, we think that that had more to do with just some slightly lazy forecasting on the behalf of the consensus. Now, this comes to uh, how economists will generally aggregate up their forecasts. So you can think, okay, you've got all these components in a basket and you have to weight them together to get the whole. And economists tend to do that just looking at the growth rates and then weighting those together. But that then doesn't perfectly match the actual approach that statisticians take. What they have is a base month each year and they use that for price relatives to every other month in the year. And th this is a crucial distinction because when you get a big price shock in the course of that year, it means that the, the effective weights actually are different from what the published weights are because the, the index in that price relative has gone up a lot by, because of that price shock. And often doesn't make much difference, but because the housing energy shock has been so enormous, it's equivalent to raising the impact of, in this case, the October 22 rise by about 50%. So it's a huge gap there between what the lazy assumption would tell you and what the actual approach is doing it. So if you want to do this properly, you know, you've got to, you've got to aggregate it by the index. Don't do the lazy approach or look to people like me who, you know, do this in code and we do it properly within the component levels you know it, it was a bit stronger for us but it wasn't it wasn't a, a massive surprise to us anyway and what there was was mainly within the food price component as, as you can see here this is a chart of the contributions to the monthly rate by the sort of divisions now in terms of those surprises obviously it was a it was a big upside surprise to the consensus in that that latest release for october but that you know if it was just a one-off, then we probably wouldn't be having this discussion. It's the fact that these surprises have been so heavily skewed in that direction for a really extended period of time 
and that leaves uh yeah it should leave economists going well why is why is this the case and one reason that that we've highlighted and has heavily influenced our forecasts is because there's a difference between the, the kind of top-down approach that you'd want to take with the big macro factors in there and the bottom-up approach that you would take doing little forecasts of all of the different components. Economists generally do that bottom-up approach because when there's little changes in weights and seasonality and little bits of price shock, it just works better to do it from that bottom-up approach. But when you have really large cost shocks, there's a, a long and variable lag between that cost shock occurring and it actually transmitting through to the end consumer price. If you're trying to model, let's say, the price of clothing and you've got something about like labor costs in there, you are not going to fear a relationship. There is just no standard like feed through the lag structure in, in that thing. The way that those macro dynamics feed through instead is just recognizing that the cost base is higher and things will trend a bit higher than they otherwise would do. So we we reconcile this in our approach by modeling where we think the equilibrium level of prices would be. So we say, given the prevailing level of unit labor costs, given the prevailing level of import prices, given our estimates of the cyclical margin of spare capacity at the output gap. Where should the equilibrium price level be in all the different countries? Then the difference between actual prices and the equilibrium is what you see in this chart here, this blue line as being the disequilibrium. Rather long introduction, I know, but <laughs> to, to the concept, but it it's, it's it's worth it because it is a it is a, a critical thing for understanding the inflationary dynamics and how long this kind of excessive regime is going to last. What you can see specifically on this chart is the level of disequilibrium plotted against the the rolling the twelve month rolling accumulation of CPI surprises. So the latest thing here is saying that up until in the year up to the October twenty two print there was about 180 basis points of surprises in each of those monthly monthly prints over those 12 months. That's pretty, pretty punchy. And these moves correlate in both directions with the extent of disequilibrium, because in any regime, the same problem exists. You know, we don't have the ability to fit those long and variable lags in the bottom-up approach. So the trend is a bit higher or a bit lower than we might think as prices try and pull back towards that equilibrium level. We had assumed that from earlier on this year that this would, would be trending down straight away. Um, even with our assumption that it would, would start kind of correcting fairly quickly, you know, our forecast was four percentage points above the consensus when we wrote a piece, and it's on Smart Karma, back in, in March explaining the relevance of this framework. We were four percentage points above consensus for the the print that came out um, yeah last week, and yet the outcome was still almost three percentage points above where we were. So our our notionally outlandish view was still surprised by an enormous degree. Unfortunately, it after correcting a bit into the summer, the equilibrium price has been going up by slightly more than the actual inflation, even though the actual inflation has been so high. That's partly because there were was a 
another round of imported price pressures through particularly like food and, and another kind of energy shock. But it's also that we're seeing more second round effects into wages. Now they might, they, they need not run for years, those second round effects, but they are proving stickier and worse than, than we'd initially expected, not aided by governments doing very large rises in minimum wages and benefits that kind of shift the work incentive and, and raise the cost base for, for, for many businesses in the country. So that kind of raises the equilibrium and means that you know, it's like the goalposts are moving or like you're running towards the finish line and that finish line keeps moving away from you. And the, the more it moves away, the longer that inflationary regime is going, going to last for. And you can see that here where I'm decomposing the changes in the equilibrium price level into unit labor costs, import prices and the output gap relative to the end of 2019. So you see how yeah, there's been this extra kick from import prices over the past couple of quarters, and we've extended the unit labor cost pressure for the, pre for the few quarters after that. The reason it flat is also related to this downward contribution from the output gap here. That's the recessionary forces building, discouraging firms from raising wages and causing downward pressure on profit margins. So you need that recessionary force in order to curtail the rise in the equilibrium that ultimately allows actual prices to, to get up to that. You can see the impact of this disequilibrium on our monthly inflation forecasts here. So the CPI being the blue ones and the RPI being these kind of darker orange ones. These lines are showing you the cumulative impact of those. So as the the amount of disequilibrium was shrinking a little bit into the summer. The impact on our monthly forecasts reduced a little bit because it didn't have to be, it didn't have as far to run. And now that the equilibrium has gone up, and the disequilibrium gap has gone up, it means that the contribution to our forecast has, has increased again. So this is you know, almost 15 basis points, say, to every single monthly print month after month after month, cumulatively builds to a very large inflationary impact on our forecasts relative to others that won't be fitting this kind of a, a macro overlay to it. Is it like it's it's you know, about two percentage points on the RPI, nearer three percentage points on, on the CPI. That also has impacts in terms of kind of core inflationary pressures. You think this this isn't like about certain specific things that just are going up a lot. It's not just a food or an energy shock. There's broad-based inflationary pressures across lots and lots of bits of the basket. And we produce new several different statistical measures of underlying inflation for the UK, Euro, 19 member states of it. In the UK case, you see here how much the underlying inflation impulse has gone up. This is, is just seasonally adjusting all the components and then taking the median of, of those building an index, turning it into like a, actually it's, it's the monthly rate on an annualized basis. So you're saying if this was to be the underlying pace in every single month of the year, what would your annual inflation rate be? And we like doing it this way because you know, the, the, the year on year rate um, will tell you a lot about what happened six months ago, as well as what's happened in the latest month. So it's not very good for telling you when there's turns. Unfortunately, this, this is telling us that we're not really 
obviously turning yet the breadth of price rises is still very high and the growth rate of, of those broad-based pressures is, is very very high we do have it coming down and that's largely because of food where we think that the food price shock is going to be starting to to wash out but it is something of a of a of a hope rather than a high conviction aspect we could easily see this core inflationary regime lasting for for longer but at least from us propagating this news of, of the disequilibrium into the forecast it, it does help our forecast dynamics to work a lot better than they otherwise would do if you were to not have this effect you would just see this smashing down to two percent roughly speaking because you fit the model on the past inflation was about two your model will give you something that's a bit like two percent <laughs> and that's why everyone's forecast month after month is just like it's, good. it's past the peak but yeah we, we can do better than that that's just showing the food price effects and, and this is Europe-wide, this kind of problem, just way above seasonal norms month after month. For November and December, we have it still being above more, more food price inflation than seasonal norms, but yeah, slowing relative to what it has been. The impact of that on this one, and I'll, I'll show you the equivalent for the euro in a minute, but for the UK's case, yeah, that steady trend rise in our forecast, the fact that it's boosted by this macro feature, means that cumulatively we end up nearly two percentage points above the consensus um, yeah, in, in a bit over a year. A chunk of that is, in this case, is down to that that front print where we were we were a lot higher than the consensus and, and, and rightly so. But there is that kind of higher trend regime. You'll notice that the CPI and the RPI gap converges here. And that's because of house prices and mortgage interest payments where when you get to the Bank of England stopping hiking and eventually getting on to cutting, that has a direct downward impact on the RPI inflation rate and not the CPI. And house prices went up a lot uh, in recent years, but the market is is starting to crash. Sorry, Phil, if I could just pause you right there. So, you know, as you are based in the UK yourself, maybe you could share with the audience members, especially for those of us who aren't based in Europe or, or in the UK, personally, have you seen, you know, on your day-to-day basis, a huge increase in terms of the food prices yourself? Do you feel the pinch as much as the forecasts have been saying? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it is very obvious and unavoidable. You can see it in terms of affecting consumer behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a very tough environment for the more the kind of Middle England. Mm-hmm slightly more affluent-facing supermarkets like Waitrose and Marks and & Spencers. People have kind of said, well, my budget doesn't go as far. So the European discounters like Audi and Lidl have had huge gains in market share as people try and dial out the inflation by trading down to, to cheaper providers. But unless you're doing that, you know, it's, it, it's unavoidable. Everything is going up by by a lot, and that also then influences inflation expectations because this is the the high high frequency stuff. People put mm-hmm. more more weight on the things that they buy regularly when they're saying how fast they feel inflation is going, and thus how much they think inflation is going to go in the future. And that feeds into like wage demands and you know the, all the strikes that are unfortunately already starting in the UK and. 
look set to get rather rather worse <laughs> through the winter. Yeah, so I'll I'll come back to the housing market stuff if people are particularly interested. Yeah, the because it is it's one of those sort of risks that, that's hanging over the over the, the the broader recessionary narrative in the UK. But from the the kind of euro area equivalents here, the October print for for euro area HICP that was also an upside surprise to the consensus by a similar degree. We were 0.5 percentage points above the consensus on that one as well. In the event, the flash was three three basis points above us. So we were pretty close, but it was an enormous shock to the consensus. And yeah, if we were looking at where we would have been a few weeks ahead of that release, it was still a big shock to us. It's just that we were kind of observing the, the, the news and tracking that in a bit better. Um, you also say that in terms of the, the kind of key special aggregates of like services, energy, food, non-energy, industrial goods, and the, the kind of core being ex-food, energy, alcohol, tobacco, all of those are well above the 2% V target. So uh, th- there is a, a problem at that special aggregate level. We also do the same sort of approach, as I mentioned earlier, with these sort of statistical measures of underlying inflation, the equivalent sort of median seasonally adjusted annualized rate for the big four countries here, you see that there's a similar problem across your area member states. So there's a broad-based problem across a broad range of countries, which is just the the worst kind of kind of breadth here. France is actually at new new highs in terms of the pace of broad-based inflation. Yeah, Germany is not far off the peak. Italy is not far off its its recent peak. Spain has come down a little bit and disequilibrium is a bit smaller there. But in all these cases, you know, we want them to be two. That would be the target consistent level. If you're if every month your your kind of central tendency is four to ten percent, well you're not on a path to two percent at all. You're like on a path to staying way, way above. Yeah, we also don't want to go back to the sub two percent regime where inflation expectations were like going into this shock they were anchored well below target and we we kind of recognize when those expectations were were breaking and resetting higher the danger is that in the euro area having broken the anchoring effect of inflation expectations to get them up to two percent that that anchor is just kind of flailing around now and it could set too high so that pushes the ecb to to do more because it needs to make sure that it it doesn't reset the anchor at four, it resets it at two. So we've got, yeah, kind of component-wise, we still assume that there is, that we will get a trend down in your area of inflation next year rather than, than 2022. And that's because of the, the powerful base effects that you've got, energy and food in particular, where the energy effect hits through housing and also oil prices and petrol. Those things, what's driving the 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 trend down in our forecast, as you can see from the, these kind of contribution bars here. My worry with the euro area, though, is that uh, out of all the countries in in the world, really, it is suffering just the most severe and worrying drift to forecasts. Now, this chart is a is a bit complicated again, but kind of illustrates the extent of the problem. So the the orange line is showing you the consensus for the October 2022 print. So the one that came out recently. 
And what the expectation for that was in the survey by Consensus Economics, which is conducted every single month. The reason why it lists here as November is because the October number only prints in the November Consensus Economics Survey. In the October Consensus Economics Survey, we don't know where, where it will be yet. So you see, over the course of that year, well, economists had gone from saying, oh, it's going to be a bit under 2% to it being, oh, actually, it's nearer 11 that, that's a huge move, but it's not just about October 22. It's, it's not like all the other months have been fine and then suddenly that one month surprised hugely, although, although it was a particularly large move. These blue bars are showing you what each month's print was relative to what economists had said they thought it would be in that monthly service survey by Consensus Economics. So this is not looking at like the Bloomberg and Reuters weekly surveys of economic indicators, the thing where they survey uh, people on Fridays and they say, like, oh, this is what I think it will be next week. This is from what economists said in a monthly survey that people normally answer within the first 10 days or so of the month. And so what, what that, how that compares to the outcome. So it gives you a better sense as to what the, that, that drift is. And unfortunately, in every single one of the months over this period, which is actually as long as they've been doing these monthly surveys for, every time forecasts have gone up. And they've gone up by an average of about 0.4. So if you want to know where inflation is going to be, your best bet is actually not to look at what the economic consensus is in that survey directly anyway. You're better off looking at that and adding 0.4 to it. And you'll be closer to the outcome in all of these occasions, other than May 22, when it was a bit borderline. So that is a, a concerning regime to be in. You know, there is clearly something going on, I believe, related to this equilibrium effect that economists are not are not counting for. And that every time you get these kind of shocks, it loads more pressure onto the ECB to do more about it. I believe that if you were to get anything like the shock that occurred in the last print, in the next one, then the ECB will probably end up hiking by 75 bips instead of the 50 that the market is kind of settling into to pricing. Our view is also 50, but we see very strong upside risks that they, they do 75 and that risk not being adequately reflected in the, in the current front end. Um, so this is this is kind of how it balances out on our forecast. You know, we've we've got we, we were obviously well above on the last print, which is why there's such a big gap here. But our forecast is fairly flat into year end, and then it comes down. But I'd say that given the extent of the of the drift that's there, the potential for us to get uh, yeah new peaks is is quite high. You know, if if we were you know the consensus, I think. In the monthly survey is 10.4 for the one that will the flash that we get next week. Given the drift, something that's more like 10.8 would be where you'd land. It's a frustratingly superficial way of doing it to take a consensus and add to it when we've got thousands, literally thousands of component models that go into our euro forecast. But yeah, you, you might want to look at it that way. Now onto just onto the central bank response quickly on the ECB side because it's a bit more interesting than the, our Bank of England view now that the market's kind of 
moved to price our view so nicely. Yeah, so you see here the ECB's response to this inflation inflationary regime so far. And you see both how far they've gone with that move, but also how quickly they've done it relative to, to normal adjustments. You know, going two percentage points higher, that's equivalent to the 2005 and seven hiking cycle. And it's only 25 bips off the 99 to 2001, but it's done that a lot quicker. So the the fact that they're set to go a lot further than this and doing it in a much shorter time, it does raise the risk that the economies don't adjust properly to it and that it precipitates a crisis that would force a more acute rolling over in the hiking cycle. And indeed, part of the reason why they're going quicker is arguably because they fear that stuff might happen that makes it difficult for them to keep hiking. Whereas if they front load it all, given the, the kind of transmission mechanism at work, yeah, they'll be able to keep going because they won't be quite they won't be seeing so much of the recessionary forces quite yet. The kind of political pressure to to stop earlier is, is alleviated somewhat. Uh yeah, so you see here we've got the 50 bit hike in December and then we've got another couple of 25 bit moves, but as I say, upside risks to that. And then we have rate cuts in from 2024. Now those cuts in 2024 are uh very different from what the market is pricing for the ECB at the moment. So here you can see the the front end from Bank of England Fed ECB as it was a couple of weeks ago now, but at least up until last Friday when I yeah, used this chart in our weekly because it goes in every week, the ECB thing was, was still upward sloping. The, that is kind of contrary to the sort of optimal policy control that should be going on in this this environment. If you've got inflation that's running at too high a rate, either because there's excess demand and a cyclical pressure on inflation, or there's a de-anchoring of inflation expectations, in either of those cases, you need to be going to an outright tight setting for monetary policy in order to bring this stuff back under control. But if you go to tight levels, once that inflationary problem is, is conquered, you then need to bring rates back to a more neutral setting to avoid that that undershooting. An argument I made at the start, but it's it's, it's worth repeating. The the ECB are not saying that they would need to cut in future, but up until October, the official line was that they were just trying to get back to neutral. That they thought inflation expectations were fine. That they thought there was still a bit of slack in the economy, and so they only needed to go as far as neutral. But in the October press conference, they 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 shifted that and said that actually they they, they would be going further than that, taking going beyond neutral and taking the rates to a tight level. The implication of that is you, you're recognizing the need to then bring it back down later on. It seems very unlikely that the ECB would decide to hike rates in 2024 while the Fed and the Bank of England is cutting. Put it put it that way. There's the same kind of policy imperative and the same sort of implications on front. Now, they might not go cut as quickly and as steeply as the Fed, but you should, you should have a very different curve shape from what's priced in there. For those of you that might trade these kind of fixings as opposed to just 
considering the macro view in into into your investments. I'd note that that this if, if we look at like the twenty fourth monthly contract less the twelfth monthly contract, you can see that in the euro area you've got this you can see that slight upward slope that's in there. But you can also see that there have been recent regimes where it has gone negative. So what we're saying the market should price is not some outlandish thing that it's never ever done before. You know, that they they did it in March and in June and in September. And it seems like given the the kind of prevailing policy direction, that it should be doing so again December, if if not before. Or in slightly more conventional liquid instruments, if you're looking at five year and two year swap rates to see the, the curvature there, you can see the the while you've got still a bit of positive slope for the euro, uh, the the UK and the US uh, have inverted, and they're at like multi-decadal extremes. So again, you've got this this quite severe disparity between uh, what, what's happening with the euro uh, and in those other countries, despite the fact that you know this this inflationary problem is is arguably more severe and keeping that pressure on the ECB a bit more than, than is recognised at the moment. Which, on that note, pretty much in the middle of the range I was aiming for, <laughs> time-wise, yeah, you can go for some questions. Awesome. Thank you for your insightful presentation, Phil. As mentioned before, participants, you can now send in your questions for our speaker using the Q&A button on your Zoom app. And we already have some questions from the floor, so let's just jump right in. The first question is from Dalton, and he says, many European countries have yet to pass on the higher cost of natural gas to consumers. The UK passed on most of these costs upfront, which was an exception. And natural gas prices are set to increase further next winter, given that Russian supply has all but stopped. Have you factored that into your inflation expectations for next year? Yeah, so in, in, the, like in the UK's case, firstly, they have passed through some of it but in terms of its direct impact on the inflationary forecast that is relatively easy to do now and in the forecast by which i mean there's a formula that determines what retail prices will be and it actually works in a normal way by delaying the the transmission because it uses a six-month window that is then announced and takes effect a couple of months later um so prices would be very, very high, and but the government said we can't we can't have prices over four thousand pounds a year for an average consumer. People literally can't afford it. So that they capped it at two and a half, and then it goes up in April to a three thousand pound cap. So those impacts are there's still more energy inflation in the UK still to come through. The likes of France have yeah, had a, a political overlay to things to the point it, it like broke EDF and required a lot of a lot of state support. But because of the, the general election there, they, they had to do that. France does get it a bit easier because it has so much nuclear. So the kind of base load there is a relatively predictable price. And then the, the its exposure to natural gas is a bit smaller. So it, it shouldn't it, it's not like it has the need to triple energy prices in in france even though it hasn't gone as far yet uh places like spain they have a incredibly quick pass through they, they actually have a uh, a regulated tariff that sets resets intraday so we we tap straight into that 
and that feeds our yeah at least daily updates of our Spanish forecast. So we yeah we we do a bit more energy price inflation within our forecasts. It does end up mitigated a little bit in the short term because of downward moves in like yeah liquid fuel prices particularly you know weighing on german inflation in, in november um so yeah things are a bit more a bit more balanced risk rises but risk wise around inflation at the moment in the short term the the kind of point about next year is a very good one and that is not something that we're already overlaying into the forecast but recognizing that it is a, a significant upside risk you know, the reason that the prices have been able to come down a lot for this winter is because stockpiles rebuilt so well but you won't be able to rebuild stockpiles in the spring and summer without the supply that that's that's coming from Russia even with the new LNG terminals that the Germany's building and the kind of contracts expansion from the US and Qatar and hopes to yeah get a bit more output from from Norway so that yeah I'd, I'd still see there's upside risks from from energy in in next year and more generally around operational risks in the supply chain but I won't ramble on about that right now unless people want me to talk about operational risk <laughs> It's right. sexier than it sounds. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Thank you so much for that. Gautam, do let us know if that answered your question. And we have one more question from the floor that says, what do you see as the interest rate terminal rate for UK and by when? Yeah, so US, UK, Euro, we see that, that terminal rate being hit in the spring in, in all, all of those cases because they're going so fast, yeah, another 50 bips in, in December, uh, and then kind of slowing into to, to 25s later on with upside risks. In the case of the UK, the current published forecast is 4%, where we're highlighting upside risk to that. And that's why when the market never quite got down to a 4% peak, given the, the kind of upside risks and market appetite, we were still saying that that, that wasn't worth sort of trading for, for lower. And yeah, it's, it's rebounded a bit since then. Given the the fiscal statement last week and the surprisingly large rise in the minimum wage pension broader benefit spend for me that's raised unit labor cost pressures in my forecast raised inflation further and so um i'm leaning a little bit more towards a, a four and a quarter peak than a four four percent peak yeah yeah for the for the ecb yeah, similarly, you get like another 50, another couple of 25s. We've got two and three quarter peak in the deposit rate, that is rather than the, uh, the others, but also with with upside risks, where, where the the most obvious thing that could trigger that upside risk is a, a strong print or high print for inflation next week, which would then mean they probably went 75 in December instead of 50. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. And in the interest of time, let's round this session off with one last question, which is how is the general and common people reacting toward this inflation on a daily basis? So, yeah, most people are having to kind of retrench their consumption profiles. So that means like trading down to cheaper brands from cheaper outlets than they would ideally be going for it also means uh, postponing kind of higher ticket discretionary items so even though you've got 
the World Cup that's just started. And normally that would see a big flood of demand for things like TVs. We we did not get that in the run up to it. Maybe there's a kind of backloaded thing. Maybe if England does really well, people will go and people will buy loads in Black Friday this week. Maybe there does seem to be a lot more price sensitivity to demand in general. So when you get sales activities, we're seeing a lot more concentration of consumption into those events like Amazon Prime Day and its early access sale. I've wrote a little bit about both of those also on, on Smart Karma if you're interested in the kind of evidence that those sales are, are feeding into consumption. We're also seeing the the housing market activity stall. I experienced that firsthand because I was trying to sell <laughs> at the time and being days away from exchanging contracts and it, it all fell through. Um, we can see in surveys at the moment that the market activity has pretty well has, has gone down a lot. There's been a lot more transactions that have been collapsing. The surveyors of house prices have broadly become more pessimistic, not saying things are in a full-blown crash yet, but by the nature of the, the kind of dynamics of the housing market, when people start to fear there's going to be falls. They hold back. They they don't put new leverage into the market. That then means that prices do fall. So they get concerned. So they hold back and prices fall more. And this is a, uh, a, a reinforcing behavior, an inherently nonlinear thing that happens with, with house prices. And that's that's one of the downside risks to, to our already relatively gloomy yeah, UK forecast. And actually with that, I'd say that you also see in terms of interest rates, which is not helping with, with the kind of natural flow of the economy is that when we had this big dysfunctional market response to the fiscal statement from end of September that then caused you know, yields to just massively blow out in October, that the kind of household facing interest rates have not properly reset since then. So they went up a lot with swap rates. Swap rates came back down as market confidence restored. But banks have not passed through that reduction to households yet. So as far as the general public are concerned, looking at what they can refinance their mortgage on or what they might be able to take out to borrow for funding Christmas or funding a new house purchase, their affordability has not improved. There's essentially an extra 75 bips or so of, of margin in, in uh, net interest margin on bank loans at the moment. We think that'll come down, but it'll take a few months. And in the interim, that just all kind of feeds into this pervading gloom among consumers as they, they retrench back and yeah, start to look at more strikes. Good to know. Thank you so much. And that is our final question for today. Perhaps to close this webinar, well, you could share with the audience some final words you want to leave them with about today's topic. Yeah, this was just that although there's almost euphoric response to the US low CPI print for October. We we can't take that to mean that the inflation problem is over. And we certainly can't extrapolate that to good news within Europe. There were enormous upside surprises, even relative to our forecasts when we were 50 pips above on Euro and UK. And it, it was still strong. So there is still this problem that's there. That does mean that there's more rate hikes coming. But on the other side of it, 
there will eventually need to be some cuts when this this problem is conquered and that creates some opportunities in in the sort of relative curve shape between the UK and your area. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Phil, for your time today. And thank you to all attendees for being with us. If you wish to keep track more of Phil's insights and on the topic shared today, I recommend following him on Smart Karma so you never miss any of his insights. If you have any other questions or comments, please email us at research at smartkarma.com or you can reach out to Phil personally on the Smart Karma app itself. Thank you once again, Phil, for spending your morning with us and goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.